think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 24 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 25th episode, uh, the first of the summer editions. Uh, today we interviewed David Coletto at his office in, uh, in downtown Ottawa, and we're going to roll that interview for you right now. David Coletto, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, David Coletto, CEO, Abacus Data, polling firm based here in Ottawa. I'm also a prof at Carleton and uh, a foodie and a mad cyclist. And a foodie. I've never been comfortable with the term foodie. I always feel it's a, like a little too new I mean, age you, for me. You are a foodie though, Etienne. Like you're, you're a craft beer snob who loves charcuterie and cheeses. <laughs> like it, It's also like... I'm the one who just said it, but like we all need to eat food. It's true. So we are all innately foodies. It's just, I think those who self-identify as foodie, as someone who's in the business of trying to identify people's self-identities, it says something about who I am. And as a result, Facebook, Google, and Instagram know how to target ads towards me if I I self-identify. You're a category somewhere in the algorithm. And I've chosen to be that, so they choose the ads that appear to me that that apply. Etienne, it's complicated. He fights against his heritage here because he's he's a Quebecer by by, by blood, but he grew up in Alberta, (laughs) so of course he loves the the cheeses, but he can't let on that he likes food that isn't steak. I've just never liked the E word. It just seems too, (laughs) too forced. I'm a foodie. Yeah, no, I see it, but... uh, I'm a proud foodie. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I won't hold it against you this time. <laughs> so, as David mentioned, we are we are at the uh, the Advocate State offices, as he mentioned, in Ottawa. It is in fact the most unmistakably Ottawa view from the office you could imagine. We have a clear view of Parliament Hill, which you'll see on Twitter uh, before we post this episode. It'll be great. Uh, but David's here to talk to us about his work in the polling industry and the polling industry more broadly. So, do you want to tell us? People mostly interact with polls mm-hmm. um, from political polls. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the business of political polling and how it's actually not really the business of polling at all? Yeah, I, I would say in Canada in particular, almost every firm that you've ever heard of, um, none of them make their living or make the you know the significant portion of their revenue from political polling. Um, like the fact that we actually don't have full-time political consultants in Canada for the same reason. There's simply not enough campaigns, not enough money um, for it to be an exclusive kind of business. Um, but for the firms like Abacus or Nanos or Ecos that you hear of, often referred to, um, and, and those doing political research, you know, one of the reasons we do it, particularly in this town and in provincial capitals across the country, is because it, it gets noticed and it's one form of marketing. Um, and so when you hear political polling and, and you know, during an election in particular, of all these firms putting out numbers, um, most of them are doing it for marketing purposes, is to be to be on the list of decision makers who wake up one day and say, you know what we need to do? We need to do a survey. Uh, we need to track our reputation. We need to understand how the public views a, a particular issue. Who should we call? If your name is, is mentioned more in the news in a positive way and, mm-hmm. and people think you, you, you do interesting work and ask interesting questions, my hope is you're going to be uh, at the top of that list when they, when they make the decision. So a lot of the political polling that we see um, is driven by one, business development, and two, I think all of us, if you ask any of my colleagues, we're all kind of political nerds. We, we're most interested in this stuff, and therefore we love doing it, and that's why we do it as well. Yeah, it, it seems sort of like a lost leader where the, the industry sort of sinks its own resources in, and it's, it then becomes sort of marketing. 
um, as opposed to you know running ads that say, hey, listen, we're a polling firm, we exist. It sort of gives you weight and credentials to say, listen, yeah. instead, of, instead of running ads, we're in the news, that's how polling firm markets itself. And I think it's somewhat unique. It's probably comparable to the GR industry a little bit. And that the GR industry markets itself by putting its professionals right. on the news in a very similar way. Yeah. They spend time and resources preparing to be on the news. It's it's yeah, it's a very different kind of marketing. I think you're right. It's a loss leader. Um, you know, I, I we spend very little money as a company, and I think most advert uh, marketing sorry market research firms are in the same boat on advertising dollars, uh, and instead we we look to create content, and increasingly we're seeing. We work with a lot of clients on the marketing side that are doing that as well. Mm-hmm. That content marketing is kind of the uh, the best way to engage a, a, a consumer, uh, uh, the audience. But for us in particular, it's 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 certainly why we do it, and uh, it it works, which is why we continue to do it. So I'd heard an interesting anecdote out of the the 2016 American election, where, as you mentioned, the point of political polling usually is to get the name of the pollster out there. But what's happened in the last couple of years is the phenomenon of Nate Silver, the Mm -hmm. man who seems to be single-handedly killing political polling, in that no one reads the individual polls anymore because they say, ah, just look at the aggregators, who then mention the names of, you know, where they're getting the data, but it's not as prominently displayed, and it's more about the meta-analysis of the different polls rather than the actual content of the polls themselves. And I'm guessing this isn't so much a phenomenon in Canada yet because we simply don't have, A, the amount of polls, and B, the amount of quality poll aggregators. I, I think it is. Ha- I think it's having an effect, though. Yeah. You know, Eric Grenier would be our equivalent, yeah. and, and I think we've had this conversation uh, with Eric himself. And I think what you're, what I've noticed, anyways, at least since the last election, whether it ramps up as we head into the the next federal, we'll see. But I know we're doing less um, horse race polling, mm-hmm. for, and that's not necessarily the only reason because we think we get lost in the shuffle. But it's one reason. And the other reason is it's just there's no gain there yeah. uh, to to be doing that particularly in the middle of a, of a term. But in the U.S. is interesting because one of the differences between Canada and the U.S. as well is so many of the political polls, publicly released political polls that are being done, are actually named for the media organization that right. sponsors them. And yeah. some institutions like New York Times and the Washington Post and others still have polling directors within their newsrooms, which is something that in Canada mm. you rarely see. So you won't see the... CTV News Globe and Mail poll anymore, right? Nanos would be commissioned for the Globe or CTV News uh, to do that poll. And so there's in the US, there's less incentive for that loss leader. In fact, because a lot of the polling, a lot of the media organizations still pay for research. But in Canada, it's an interesting, I I think, perspective on why maybe we we're doing less horse race polling and more interesting, you know, issue personality, branding kind of research that can't get aggregated into a model. Right. Uh, you can stand, it kind of stands alone um, and, and allows you as a firm, as a researcher, to demonstrate you know, your curiosity or yeah. the kinds of questions you like to ask. So an example of that would be, for instance, if you take Andrew Scheer or Justin Trudeau and you rate them or you rank them based on uh, personality characteristics, Grenier cannot roll that into his model, right? Give him and, time. And, <laughs> and, 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 and so you might find a way eventually if we all yeah. start doing it. But yeah, yeah, you know, like one of the most popular polls we've we ever did a few years ago before the last federal election, we asked you know people in a survey, you know, you always hear that is he the kind of guy or or is he the kind of leader you want to have a beer with? Well, we we took that and expanded it and says 
you know, which of the three leaders is most likely to give you a dollar if you if you asked him for a dollar if you needed it, or who would you trust most to babysit your kids? <laughs> and those were, while on the surface people said these kind of sound dumb or or they're they're superficial, but in reality people learned a lot about how people perceive these these three leaders who are very different were very different people at the time, um, and. and and you couldn't put it in a model. So it was covered by the news and it, it, it got a lot of traction. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. There's also a, a kind of a third player here, which is political parties who do some of their own, poll- not as much, not nearly as much as they do in the States, where I think parties will sometimes have their own mm-hmm. pollsters just kind of on speed dial. But there is a role for that, especially at election time. Uh, is that the work that uh, like the polling firms in Ottawa or elsewhere do? Um, if they do, you, you likely... Uh, don't hear about them, right? So in the so in the case of Abacus, one of our sort of corporate policies is we don't do partisan political work. So we don't, we've never worked for a political party. Um, we've done a few municipal campaigns, but those are sort of one-off small things. Uh, and the reason, one of the reasons is because I feel if you do political polling, if you're, you know, advising Justin Trudeau or Andrew Scheer on, on strategic directions, you can't also then be putting public data out there and saying it's, 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 um, you know, objective, and you yeah. don't have a bias. We all have a bias built into the work we do, I think, but it's pr- it's much harder to say it's not biased when you're advising uh, the PM or, or the leader of the opposition. So as a result, you know, in our in our business, David Hurley, um, Gandalf Group. Most of your listeners may not know who that firm is, but David Hurley is a well-known uh, public opinion researcher, advisor to Kathleen Wynne and Paul Martin, and I think every provincial premier in Atlantic Canada right now. <laughs> And as a result, you don't see a lot of, or any, publicly released polls from Gandalf on politics because yes. it'd be hard for him to do that. So are they named after the wizard? They are. Just he is, there? yes. They are. They are. I yeah. was going to say that. They are. He apparently is, in fact, a big Lord of the Rings nerd. Well, I guess and, you'd have to be, yeah. And opted to name his company after Gandalf the Grey. Yeah, well, or Gandalf the White, depending on uh, where, where, about, where yeah. he was at. Yeah. That's good. Also, just a note for the listeners, a uh, tragically hip tribute band seems to have broken out on the lawn of Parliament Hill. So I don't think this could really get any more Canadian at this point. This is kind of absurd. Uh, um, so let's let's backtrack a little bit here and talk about the history of polling because I know the the state of polling today is very much in flux and it's not what it once was in uh, in different ways in terms of methods and techniques used. So do you want to talk a little about how polling started it started in like the 1950s if i remember my yeah. uh, my readings correctly and then it's evolved and is still evolving today into some of the new sort of internet techniques that are being used particularly by yourself yeah well that's the first point is what you just said is is to just think about how very young a science if, you know if we view it as a science this really is that the 1950s wasn't that long ago my parents were born in the 50s. I certainly wasn't. Um, and yet this was a science that, that's quite young. And so, so much has changed, though, in its very brief period at which we've been able to, to measure, uh, you know, the views of large populations with a, very, with a relatively small sample size. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you look at the evolution of it, it really all started with our ability, because of technology, um, to, to be able to access people. I mean, before... The telephone was kind of universally held in every household. Uh, the really the only way you could conduct a random survey was either by mail, which even then was expensive, or you go door to door. Some of the best surveys in the world are still done face to face. The the British election study is yeah. still admin- at least a part portion of it is still administered by setting up an interview with a household and going in and 
and doing that interview in person. I got an in-person poll when I was living in the UK. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. but it's it's still the best way because it's, it's truly random. You can randomize the household itself, but it's incredibly expensive. Yeah. So you, you get to the point in the 1960s when most households, almost all, had a telephone. You then had a, a now direct reach into to people's lives, and you could randomize phone numbers. And that's the key point uh, of, of, of the work that we try to do, which has shifted quite a bit, is you know the perfect survey is based on probability theory that if mm-hmm. I call random thousand people within a plus or minus 3.1 percent I should get a pretty good read of, of what that population is within that thousand people now the polling industry's shifts or evolution is tied to technology as well so we're now at a point where when I was born in 1981 I've been told it was relatively easy <laughs> to do a survey, right? Yeah. People answered their phones. Everyone had a phone. People answered them. And when they answered them, most people, at least a good, close to a majority, answered your survey. We're now in a world where, um, I think I just saw data in Illinois, for example, where 90% of people who live in Illinois are cell phone-only households. Mm-hmm. That's insane, yeah. right? That basically means, you know, landlines are... are, are going to be a thing of the past very quickly and so if you want to do a telephone survey you have to call people on their cell phones which we can do but when I teach uh, polling I ask my class and it's always the same answer do you answer your phone if you don't know who's calling most people say no do you check your your voicemail if somebody leaves one which pollsters don't do the answer is no too and so we're we're seeing a, a major shift so now we have in replace of the more expensive telephone survey which is still I think if you have the money and the need for that kind of precision is still the best way to do a survey, we've shifted almost entirely to online. Yeah. Where the bulk of research, whether it's political, whether it's you know, market or consumer research, is done online. And there's limitations to that. There's no random sampling. Not everybody has access to the internet. Not everybody who answers a survey online is the same as those who don't. But my experience has been, if you do it right, it's, 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 it can be just as effective at, at answering the research questions that you have. You just need to to know uh, the limitations. So it's been a very short story, I think, in the history of polling, but we've seen the change that we've had. Every time there's been a change in technology or a change in behavior, yeah. the industry has found a way to respond and still get the data that they need. I remember reading, uh, I think this was Susan Ellicourt's book, actually, from a couple of years ago, that you know people, pollsters were having an existential crisis when response rates were dipping below 50%. And now they're at around two, I believe. Maybe even for IVR. Than, if you yeah. do an automated IVR, also known as like robo polling, um, you're getting two, three percent. It's closer to ten. Yeah. For a really good uh, live telephone survey, yeah. but that's still yeah, it's very low. Still very low, right? And, and, and that's that's ten percent of those that you actually make contact with. Yes. Yeah. So. And there, I believe there are legislative barriers in Canada compared to the U.S. as well, in the sense that random digit dialing is, I think, more frowned upon, or is that simply for parties? In, it's that actually in the wrong. U.S. So, oh, is it really? Okay. Yeah, and so Whoops. in the U.S., yeah, in the U.S., they, they, um, you cannot, you cannot call cell phones uh, using a computer and a, a digit okay. dialer, right? Okay. So you have to physically, manually dial. dial the number into a into a phone when you're calling a cell phone. In Canada, you can still okay. automate that process, um, and and there's you know regulation allows polling companies to kind of. Well, to call households without being and not having to take into account the do not call list or or to register their activities, mm-hmm. um, it's it's only during elections that you have to start registering 
uh, robo or IVR polling because of the volume of calls that a, a voter will get during an election. Yeah. To dig into online polling uh, very quickly, because I this is something I learned relatively recently, um, but yourself and other pollsters use sites that uh, sort of incentivize people to complete polls. They're given like air miles or something else that's sort of, because I'd never heard of these websites that you register for and you then are sent polls to complete and once you complete them, you're given some sort of incentive, yeah. a dollar. Or, yeah. you, do you want to talk a little bit? Yeah, about sure. It? So we, our primary sample provider is what we call it because that's what we, we view this as is, is a company called Research Now and they manage a number of different panels but if you bring them all together, they say they have about 500,000 Canadians recruited onto a panel that initially started, I think the original recruitments were from Air Miles. So they basically had the opportunity to send everyone on an Air Miles card, which at one time was, was close to like, I think 85% of Canadians had an Air Miles card. Yeah. And then asked them to join the panel and from time to time, they'd be emailed and asked to do surveys. Um, Angus Reid has a panel, a number of different, there's a number of different options. Leger has one. Each of them recruited slightly differently, refreshed, you know, people get stale on these panels. If you answer too many surveys, I think it changes you a little bit. You start to think <laughs> of the world differently if, you're, if you know you're going to be asked certain questions. or um, And so uh, when I look at, at online sample, um, people say, well, you know, these people are getting incentivized. That's a problem. I actually think it's a, it's a, it's a benefit. Um, think about it, right? If I call a random household and say, Hi there, I'm calling from Abacus Data. Do you have 20 minutes to answer a survey? And I'm going to give you absolutely nothing for it. The person who says yes to that, I think, is going to be at some point different than the person who says no. Yeah. Um, and we know that that if you just do the, if you look at the raw data, they're generally more educated, higher income, a little bit older. And so to get those, to get a more representative sample, I think incentivizing helps. Now. We're getting kind of into the weeds here, but you have to also recognize that there are some people who will simply answer that survey to get the incentive. So you need to put in um, quality control mechanisms, I call them, to weed out those who are just clicking through a survey. And and there are li little traps we can set to, to sort of catch that person. We, we look at how long it takes. If we think it's going to take 12 minutes to answer a survey and someone takes two, we know they just click through it and we toss that result um, and they do don't they get their incentive. Oh, they don't even No, we it. tell them. And, then, and, then, and, and that's, that's, it's in the sample provider's in, um, best interest to make sure that the, the quality of their panel is good. Right. So they are okay with that. That's fair. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's one of only a few or that's one of uh, multiple ways you have of sort of rejecting samples. And also there's, I understand there's a filtering mechanism mechanism on a lot of them that start with what city do you live in? And if you're not pulling for that city, all the other people just get kicked yeah. out the door immediately. There's, yeah, there's some direct things you can do as well. You can, if you had a matrix, so matrix is like when you, you know, you have, um, say along the, the columns, you know, strongly agree to strongly disagree. And then you have like five statements on the rows. You could put one of those rows to say, please select strongly agree and or strongly disagree or one in the middle and if you're someone who's just clicking the first one and you're not actually reading you're just going to click incorrectly and then you're going to get tossed so those are there's some things you can do you can also rephrase questions turn them positive and negative and if someone answers inconsistently to, to a back-to-back -back question you know they're not reading and therefore you can also kind of filter them out so there are there are tricks that that that, that i think any good bolstered uh, researcher doing online research knows now to, to ensure that the, the quality of the data is there because that's 
For me, that's the most important thing um, is making sure that that data is of, of good quality. Do you guys want to talk about the uh, the sort of quantum of poles or the, the alchemy of poles in the sense that they um, they are both observed and then have an effect on the observer, right? In the sense that they both record mm-hmm. and communicate public opinion, but then also serve to shape it to some degree. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I think this is a uh, it's an ongoing debate. Yeah, in, in our industry, right? When people. Uh, there's those who advocate the banning all publicly released polls during an election. Yeah. And obviously, I think I've held I don't think you're going to find a pollster point. who will agree it. with that <laughs> view. I'm over in last. Although the stress of polling, yeah. sometimes I think maybe that would be good. We didn't have to, we didn't have to worry about it um, or, or, or fret because from a pollster's perspective, an election is the only time when we're actually measured on the on the accuracy and our ability to actually yeah. to get things right. So if we didn't have to do it, well then. There's no accountability measure. But it's an interesting question. Like, my sense is I think it works both ways, right? So I think we are measuring people's perceptions, often not well-formed opinions, but at least their initial reaction. Um, And then at times, I think we also probably impact public opinion. I think it it means something for an individual who's perhaps holds a view that they may not have thought was in the majority or they may have thought was the majority but is actually a minority and then to learn what their neighbors uh, think about something might actually affect their view mm-hmm. I think yeah, it's gonna it'd be hard to prove and, and demonstrate but I think if you look at the you know the history of, of opinions around same-sex marriage as an example and how quickly public opinion shifted in the United States and in Canada on those issues I think part of it was driven by a view that I'm seeing this shift happen in polling. I can't hold this view anymore. I need to rethink my own opinion. And and that probably accelerates sort of that shift that happens. In the same way, during an election, if if a party you didn't think had a chance to win is now polling ahead, that might change your vote, right? If, if your goal is to defeat Stephen Harper or to prevent Jack Layton oh, from becoming prime minister. <laughs> I'm going to get... Right? No, no, but like... <laughs> so, so in a way, polls, you know, I don't think distort democracy. I think they actually, in a system like ours where... You have to, someone yeah. has to, it's first past the post. Yeah. It actually p- perhaps allows, yeah. given that polls are well, accurate. Yeah, and you know, we talked about, and I think NDPers sort of have not so fond memories of this phenomenon kind of happening in the 2015 election, but just recently in the UK, Labour start, if they had not allowed polling during that election, who knows what would have happened because Labour started. Hey, and I'll, I'll hold you to back. that, New Democrat. If, if Jack Layton's oh, orange crush wasn't yeah. measured in 2011, I'm not certain that. You would have saw the sort of the the rise in other parts of the country yeah. either, right? Like people people needed to see him as the alternative and know yeah. that others were doing it for them to jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, so now, is that good? Is that bad? <laughs> I'm not going to debate. I think yeah. the merits of it. I just think more information for a voter is is better, and this is one piece of information that allows them to make a decision. Yeah, I, whenever I hear these arguments, I, I tend to think of the counterpoint, and the obvious one here is obviously Hillary and Trump. Um, and to what extent did Hillary being given a 99% chance by some obviously ridiculous pollsters, I, I wouldn't expect Pol- either... Aggregators. Pol- that, yeah, aggregators. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a 99% chance of victory, or even perhaps 100 in some cases, suppress the vote in one direction or the other. And I've, I've never seen a... Uh, a coherent or believable response that it would have suppressed either the Trump vote more or the Hillary vote more. So it's it's sort of up in the air as to what, what impact it had on democracy in that case when the margin was so narrow. 
Yeah, and I think that's a good point. And these are all things that this is why political parties either love or hate these polls, right? Because on the one hand, it not only depresses potentially vote, it could depress fundraising, it could depress volunteer morale. There's there's a whole series of impacts that a good or bad poll can have on a campaign at one point or just you know the momentum that a party has in, in a whole other areas. On your point about the U.S., though, I think it's important, and as a pollster, I will defend you know, the, the industry. You, you noted the aggregators made those kinds of predictions. It wasn't the pollsters out there saying this is a slam dunk, right? Because, you know, I, I always I always ask the question back to people. If I was, if you were a campaign manager and I delivered you uh, a poll that said your candidate is two or three points ahead of your, your, your opponent, do you go to that candidate and say it's in the bag, Hillary? No, you say it's close, we should win. But, and, and I think that's, and I've written a little bit about this, I think that's where the, the models fail, is that yeah. people people not only probably over-exaggerated uh, the likelihood of her winning, but underestimated what a 30 or even a 20% chance of Trump winning actually meant. Yes. And how likely that actually was to happen in anything else in our lives. If I told you you had a 30% chance of uh, you know getting in a car accident the next time you step in a car probably not going to get in a car, right? And right. we, some, Nate Silver told us 30, Donald Trump had a 30% chance of winning the election. And most of us, me included, said, nah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, but hey, it's a roll of the dice, right? Yeah. So let me bridge this a little bit to Canadian politics and what's going on today. Um, there's there's a poll out here. I won't name them because they're obviously a competitor. And uh, they're, they're doing polling on... Uh, the NDP race, and they've done polling on mm -hmm. the conservative race, and the criticism that's thrown around here from people who love, uh, well, love the poll, they'll they'll run with the poll and publish it everywhere, and they hate the poll. They say it's not statistically representative. Yeah, for, for the record, I think any polls that have come out recently on the NDP leadership race are totally good and correct, <laughs> <laughs> for no no reason at all. Um, what what do you make of those polls, or like? Is this is the fact that they're not statistically representative reason to completely discount a poll, or is there sort of a gray zone here where, you know, you consider its biases and you sort of take it for what it's worth, rather than mm. I, I'm I'm always most of the time more data is better, but there are times when bad data is worse than no data. So it's a it's it's. It's a scale, and it's finding, you know, at either end is good and bad. Um, so in the case of, you know, leadership races, I give credit, I will say, at Main Street Research, I, I think they're at least trying to bring some insight into what are very difficult uh, contests to understand, right? Small numbers of people, um, highly fluid, and a, an ever-changing electorate, which is something that, that pollsters that, that measure you know, voting in, in general elections sometimes is difficult too because we don't know who's actually going to show up to vote. It's much more difficult in a leadership race. And I think you know, if you look back at the conservative leadership race, Main Street, I think they, they at least described the state of the race fairly well, right? Yeah, I would they, agree with that. They, they maybe didn't get it dead on in their estimate. You know, Bernier winning was, was off a little, but they still basically told us who the front runners were they said Bernie had probably the best chance to win. And what we don't know from that estimate 
to the actual vote is what happened in between. That's up to the campaigns yeah. to, to pull their voters yeah. and, and to get people. Well, so the conservative leadership race, too. I mean, they have the most like convoluted electoral system this side of like the College of Cardinals. So like, And they still uh, did pretty well. So I give credit yeah. to, to Keto and his team because, you know, they, they, they thought creatively about how do we get at it? Now, the flip side to your question was, do we, do we asterisk this? Do we say, yeah. this is not gospel? This is not an oracle that, that is, is all-knowing. And I think that should be true of every poll, yeah, I agree I'll say. But in particular, when we know there's so many biases built into it, that you're relying on donors and, you know, in the NDP case, you know, existing members in some provinces but not others. Yeah. And we know that, you know, new members are going to be an important factor when you have such a small base of a membership, potentially. Like, there's so many unknowns. Yeah. Um, the, the thing with the, the, the Main Street poll and the NDP leadership race I found interesting was it seemed to go against conventional wisdom in the media, right? And so it's when you have those polls that sometimes have people scratching their heads, right? We thought Jugmeet was a front runner, but this poll says he's close to the ballot, third, third or almost fourth, fourth, right? Something like that, yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's when people question it. So I think we just have to ask more about methodology we have to to say this is only one data point yeah or perhaps consider that the conventional media wisdom was in fact wrong which often it is <laughs> right it often is and and then, yeah so i'm not saying the poll's wrong <laughs> or, or i'm just saying that those who cover it right will say this doesn't seem right yes Maybe yeah a problem. It, raises, it raises more questions when it doesn't align with the common narrative as opposed to one that says maxim bernie is the yeah. front runner he's the one getting all the press you have to keep this in mind, right? This is my perspective as someone who, who and, and Keto and Nick Nanos and frankly, we're all business people, right? And so whenever we put something out in the public, our reputation is at stake and our business is at stake, right? Unless we have a, quote, horse in the game that we're trying to game the system by, by sort of torquing the numbers, which even then, none of my clients want to work for somebody who will give them torque numbers. Like, it's not in our interest right. to screw up. Well, this is what always people right? say about, like, oh, it's, this is a poll commissioned by the party. You can't trust it. It's like, dude, if you're a campaign manager, you don't want to get information that is wrong. <laughs> let's, let's spend, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 commissioning a, a nonsense poll. poll. Yeah, and if I'm, if I'm going to, as, as the research company, put my name on it, yeah. I don't want, if you're, and, I, and I know you're going to release it, I'm going to make sure that it's sound, right, and it's solid, or else... I'm gonna, not only are you going to look bad as the campaign, but I'm going to look bad as the person who gave you that data in the first place. So yeah. the incentive structure for, for bad polling isn't necessarily there. There's, there's limits to the methodology. There's questions you can have about how you get the data. But I think, I think all of my colleagues' intentions are good. Yeah. How we interpret the, the, the numbers, how we see the world, they can be different. But our intent, I think, is all the same, and that is we want to explain yeah. the world that we live in and, and try, use the methodologies we have at our fingertips to to do it. So folks, there you have it. Polls are not fake news, as has been sometimes suggested. At least, uh, yeah, most, I would say all of them are not fake news. There's the occasional online poll that you can, you can doubt, but um, no. Again, I think most of, most if not all of my colleagues are, are you, not trying to produce bad content. Are you telling me I should doubt the uh, the results of Twitter polls? Is, is that what's coming out here? A uh, little bit of bias sample there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A grain of salt, perhaps. Yeah. So, David, thanks so much for, for joining us today for uh, the Boys in Short Pants. It's uh, always a pleasure. 
My, uh, it was my pleasure. This was awesome. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so you're a regular on podcasts, I guess. It's uh, part of the millennial beat. It's my beat. Yeah, I don't, I don't do this mainstream media. I like the. Yeah, do you want to talk? Actually, do you want to talk a minute about your millennial beat? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll do that. So, so first of all, if you guys are sitting in front of me, you know, if you don't, if you've never seen a picture of me, the first question anyone ever asks me when they meet me in person <laughs> is, "How old am I?" David, uh, you're what, 35? I am 35. I, I, am ten, I am 10 years younger than David. I guarantee you, <laughs> if you put us in the same room and asked which of us is older, you would say I am older. I will, no comment on that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, but, so part of that was, you know, I'm a young guy starting Abacus seven years ago. I looked much younger, if that's even possible, back then. And it was like, okay, how do I differentiate ourselves? And I have been looking at the demographics and saying for a long time, there's something coming. Like, if you're a business, if you're a government decision maker, policy maker, you've got to sort of awaken to the idea that soon there will be more millennials, those born out between 1980 and 2000, than, than boomers. And that's going to fundamentally change so much. Nobody really paid attention. I've been talking about it for eight, seven years. All of a sudden, there's been a lot of interest. And I think we've seen politically in, in a number of elections start, I think starting in and with Barack Obama in 2008, when he beat, when he surprised everyone by beating Hillary, and then in 2012 when he beat Romney, and then in 2015 Trudeau getting his majority, you're starting to see that that you know when they vote, that this this generation has an impact. And so, uh, the research we do, it's not just political, it's not just on public affairs. We do a lot of uh, sort of consumer research on it. But I've I've noticed a shift here in Ottawa. I've noticed a shift around sort of public affairs generally, that people are starting to pay attention to, to, to the young people in a way that, you know, I've spent almost 15 years in Ottawa, either at school or, you know, volunteering or, or being involved in, in different organizations. And this is the first time I think that uh, the people are starting to pay attention. It's simply because, I repeat it everywhere I go, in 2019, 37% of the electorate will likely be made up of millennials, five points more than boomers. So millennials will make it the largest segment of the electorate from a generational perspective. So the oldest millennials right now, you're sort of on the tail end of the millennial generation, or the leading edge, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd say, rather, uh, would be, what, 36, 36 37, 37, around that age. Or 1980. So, I, these are arbitrary cutoffs, but yeah. I, I use the 1980 as the starting point. So the millennials, the the, the generation that's, you know, ruined grocery stores and ruined Everything. big box stores Everything, and yeah. avocado toast, is now... Almost into their 40s, uh, almost starting to get into their 40s, mostly through the 30s, mid-20s. So they're really getting into the workforce. Really starting they're, to ruin everything. They're, they're getting into society. They're having... Buying houses. Yeah. Buying too many ways. Or not. Or eating avocado <laughs> yeah. toast. Is, exactly. Said, yeah, yeah. O- often, at that, often at that point in the life where they have the highest level of discretionary income, yeah. things along those lines. So you're, you're really seeing the effects of that in terms of industry being interested in the generation and the effects of the generation as well as politics. But even the youngest part of the cohort, those like, you know, one of the you know reasons they're going to be so big in 2019 is because all of them will be eligible to vote if you, mm-hmm. if you use 2000 as, the, as the, the tail end. And, and so there is a big difference between me, someone who's 35, and someone who's 18. But what we've seen is I think I'm, I'm seeing a re, an awakening, I think, of the, the, the power that, that this group has as a block. And yes, a 30-year-old who's entering the housing market and has been working maybe for five years and starting a family is in a different spot. But if you look at the political consequences of this group being engaged, the UK is the most recent example. It's 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 a you know the election outcome didn't change. The Tories are still government, but 
Brexit is now up in the air. Theresa yes. May may not be prime minister for much longer. And it's all because I think people took for granted this group. And for somehow, I'm still trying to figure it out, Jeremy Corbyn, right, as almost 70-year-old guy, radical socialist, yeah. like another radical socialist in the States that oh, we yeah. know, awoken them. And so for all the, it's not just political parties too that I, I often say it's associations and, and corporations who are trying to, you know, influence policy in this town. If you aren't, you know, people talk about put a gendered lens on, put, put got to put a generational lens increasingly on these things. It's not, we're, we're an aging population, but political power, I think, is, is shifting away from those senior baby boomers to this new millennial Millennial cohort. So, as a cohort, what are what are some of the sort of the traits or values that you sort of see again and again being expressed by this group? I know sometimes pollsters use categories like Susie and Frank. That's so Zoe. Old. Zoe. 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 A Tory girl. Yeah. Zoe drinks Starbucks yeah. and works as a barista, and she'll never vote. But Frank works at yeah. Canadian Tire and drinks beer, and he is a conservative voter, sort of thing. These have been sort of categories, but. Overall, as a cohort, what what are sort of the characteristics you see in the millennial generation or in the millennial I, I generation? Sense, yeah, I sense a. I call it like an one for sure is like an intolerance for intolerance, right? That there is a, a streak whether you are a conservative-minded person or a Democrat or a liberal-minded person or complete unaffiliated with any party yeah. that. You know, we get really uncomfortable when we see people treated differently than others. So much for the tolerant left, am I right? Yeah, like there's there's, no, but no, there's a point to that, right? Like you actually see it probably stronger on the left that there's a real intolerance for that, for for people being treated because they're different. Uh, So that I think is one. I also think like you know questions around climate change and environmentalism. There are things that you kind of have. Those are starting points with with this generation. flexibility, open-mindedness, the idea that just because it's been done that way doesn't mean it should always be done that way. People will say, well, that's, that's an attribute of youth in any generation. That's, that's partially true. But I think our generation, unlike others, grew up at a time not only when you know, we were told we can do anything we want, which is unlike past generations, but in fact, I also say, we had a little bit of power over those in authority positions. We were the tech-savvy group entering a world in which all of those older than us, most of them weren't tech savvy. Yeah. And so we've had control, we've had a say, we've had we've been consulted on many things, whether it's our family vacation to where we want to what do we want to do as a career and in life. And so we expect that from our politicians. We expect openness and authenticity, as everybody says, probably more so. Uh, than previous generations, and I think that's what that's what distinguishes us. And it's interesting. Uh, as we were just talking about the, the phenomenon of the UK and with Bernie Sanders as well, is that you you have an age where politics is ever more scripted and message disciplined than it's ever been, uh, and it's very hard to message discipline authenticity because right. it sort of you know erodes itself in that sense. Uh, so perhaps the sort of unpolished kind of charm of uh you know you wouldn't call them charismatic this no. this actually sort but, of sounds uh, like scott gilmore's article today um which was oh i don't read scott <laughs> which was referring to like how his his thesis roughly was that millennials are primed for celebrity politicians who are unscripted who are able to hold uh, not not that i'm endorsing yeah, 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 no, no. endorsing this thesis at all 
Um, but this helps to explain Trump a little bit. This helps to explain Kid Rock running for well, the, the Senate. Is, but millennials no, didn't vote for exactly, Donald Trump. Exactly, exactly. Or a lot of them didn't, anyway. And I don't but, talk about celebrity politics. But mind. Donald Trump or Corbyn or take, take your pick. It's the unscripted, the ability to hold the limelight. The getting away from the scripted sound bites that appeals more to or, millennials or, or in the future. Or an alternative thesis would be: these were all politicians who, including Justin Trudeau, including Barack Obama, and I don't think you could find, you know, four politicians who are as different. Barack Obama and Justin Trudeau have a lot of similarities, but they're, they're nowhere near what yeah. Corbyn and, and and Sanders are. Yet they both appeal to the same group fairly passionately. Yeah, I think what they did is they said. Um, Life isn't as great as your parents think it is for you. There's big problems. Um, these guys are doing nothing to fix yeah. it. And I've got bold ideas. Yeah. All of them, all four, the thing that links them together is they had bold, and, and Jeremy Corbyn in his ad said, radical ideas. And when you can't afford to make a down payment on a house, and you can't even imagine ever doing I it. I can't even make a down payment when on you a can't, When you got 20000 uh <laughs> You know, uh, I'm just, student debt, and you have all these issues, and yet you look at the older generation who says, "You guys have it so easy." Yeah, there's there's a disconnect, and yeah. you have someone who comes along and says, "I can make your life better by doing something no one else is going to talk about." I think it connects. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and that's why I think somebody like Jeremy Corbyn is, I would describe, the farthest thing from a celebrity. Uh, yeah, I would agree. He only six months ago he was, you know, hated by his entire caucus. His approval rating is like at twelve percent. This guy was a laughing stock of British politics, and for whatever, again, I'm still trying to figure it out, he connected, right? And I think it was because Theresa May opened the door for it. She was the complete antithesis of his authenticity. Yeah. She said, I'm going to call an election because I think I can get a bigger majority to ram down something you all didn't vote for in the first place, young people in Brexit. Yeah. And people said, I'm not going to accept yeah. that. And then didn't. And then didn't come out to anything. Then didn't debate and, and like, defend her position yeah, or yeah, anything. So it was like it was, was so arrogant. Yeah. And, uh, so anyways, I think I think so much of it explains probably why they they, they turned out on mass. But I don't think celebrities the only thing. So it no. helps. It certainly helps. Justin Trudeau, you know, Tom asked Tom Mulcair what it feels <laughs> like when you put out maybe a more progressive platform, but the way you refer to things and the quality of your ability to get attention was probably the difference in you being prime minister over somebody else. Yeah, if, if I were to alter his thesis uh, to fit our conversation a little more, it wouldn't be celebrity per se, but sort of the non-traditional politician. The Corbyn, the Sanders are not your traditional scripted, polished, Trump fits that mold as well, polished politicians. Right. And you're seeing millennials and other groups uh, from the left and the right, millennials as well as, you know, right-wing, uh, deep south conservatives mm-hmm. in the United States, you know, also flee from the polished, the the Paul Ryan types right. and the establishment politicians. Well, we'll have a good case study coming up. I think the next Ontario election will, will tell us whether Kathleen Wynne, because I think she's trying really hard to, she thinks she can only win, and I think she's right by winning millennials and getting them out to vote, mm-hmm. right? Minimum wage increase, free tuition, housing affordability uh, supports, all of that is, is, I think, directed at that, you know, 25, 25 to 40 age cohort she's now at your typical politician so the question is yeah can she find a way to get them excited and, and mobilize on an issue and not about a character and yeah, yeah. certainly they have they are lugging their their sort of brand around like an anchor at this point they are but yeah we've seen sort of their numbers start to her numbers aren't but Incredibly. the party's numbers are, 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 are coming back up and it may be because again 
despite questions around their, their their honesty and whether it's actually time for a change, people are saying they're listening, they're doing something. Can can their policy overcome their branding? Is, yeah. is sort of that will be the, the thesis. That will be the yeah. yeah. That's the, well, and the X factor there too is like how well the NDP does in an election because they can sort of do both in that sense, in that people like Andrew Horvath, right. Whether that translates to them voting NDP is really like the big question of her leadership, but there you go. The thing we'll see, I, I, we're going deep in a yes. totally different topic here, but the question I think still for Andrew Horvath, she failed last time because she didn't have any bold ideas. question is, or she didn't appear to be bold. Yeah, I just don't Do they agree. go bold this time and say, we can't be out? They're going to yeah. get scooped. They're getting scooped on every single one of their ideas. So yeah. How far? Uh, yeah, yeah. Farmer sort of, care. Watch them. Watch, uh, yeah. watch the liberals. Double down on everything. Care. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, I, I raise your free tuition. I say, I'm going to pay you to go to school now. It's like... <laughs> Right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, for the record, I'm against that as I graduate uh, <laughs> I, I will officially say, in a month. So. I, I will say for students, if uh, students were half as well organized, speaking of millennials versus boomers, if students were half as well organized at CARP, as CARP, excuse yeah. me, we'd have a uh, debate. Sorry, CARP is the? The Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Yeah. We'd have debates over uh, like what the maximum wage for students yeah. should be to attend school instead of uh, how much debt they should have. Here's a good we got to find somebody who will organize it. I think if somebody made a compelling case to have a youth-focused debate, this is the 2019 will be the year yeah. that it happens. The NDP uh, leadership race had one in uh, Montreal in February. I think I think this co- yes. cohort is big enough now that, yeah. and we have a generational change in leadership that you might see one. Ooh. Fair well, enough. on that fascinating yeah. uh, bit of speculation, David Coletto, thank you again because uh, we went another 15 minutes. 15 great minutes, so I can't. Bonus. Go. Yeah, exactly. You, y'all got lucky today. Uh, Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.